Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? Welcome. It's a great day today. And we've got a a different podcast today. I was doing the series on my abuse story and my life story ministry. We're taking a break this week to hear about a special guest. Rob Decker is here with us today. And Rob is a husband, father, personal fitness trainer, health coach, recovery coach, best-selling author, and speaker. Now, Rob's primary objective is to share his story of a failed suicide attempt that led to a relationship with God. He suffered many years of sadness, anger, confusion, and fed that with drugs, alcohol, and bad relationships. With the help of God, he was able to turn his story into one of forgiveness, understanding, and love. His desire is to inspire, encourage, and give hope to those who have had similar battles. So without further ado, Here is my conversation with Rob Decker. Please welcome Rob Decker to the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Diana. I really appreciate it. You know, Evan Money was like, yo, you guys got to hang out. So, you know, when Evan Money says you guys got to hang out, I kind of listen to Evan Money. So, (laughs) Absolutely. He, uh, I met Evan and um, I told him that I wanted to do what he did, but I wanted to do it sharing my story. And so he started kind of guiding me and opening up doors. And so he's been a, he's been a, a great mentor for me. I'm actually going to have him write the forward to my book. Um, that's almost done. Just kind of thanking him for the mentor he's been to me, you know? Awesome. Uh, what probably jumped out at first was you know you're jumping out of a third story window and I'm assuming you're not a you know a stunt man so <laughs> no <laughs> not do this for man. fun right oh no definitely I promise you it was not for fun and it wasn't out of fun so um yeah <laughs> we are gonna get to that for sure because I'm sure our listeners want to know what that's all about but let's Way to talk dangle about that over their head, huh? <laughs> like, hey, jumped out of window, but you're gonna have to wait after these messages, right? <laughs> like, that's how we. That's how we do it. We suck them in. <laughs> totally. Wow. <laughs> but we got to start at the beginning. You have a very important beginning to your life that we can't leave out. So let's let's talk about your upbringing first. Your your mom had a traumatic life, so. Um, let's yeah. talk about mom and how did that affect you? Um, well, you know, my mom was the oldest out of five kids and she was raped and beaten and ran away from home at a very young age. And when she was about 16, she got pregnant with me. And I believe, well, I don't believe, I know that, you know, she wanted to have me because, 
you know, once she didn't believe in abortion, she, you know, there was enough God in her heart to know that that was a bad idea. But, you know, she wanted someone to love and she wanted someone to love her back. I was born out of wedlock. My mom met the man that I would call my dad when I was six months old. We were on the beach and she was pushing me in a stroller. And I guess he saw me and he started talking to my mom and they hit it off. And then she got pregnant and his parents told them that they had to get married because she was pregnant. And so they got married, had my sister. And from a very, very early age, I know that there was trouble. I can't recall the early emotional and physical violence, but I do know the stories that my mom has told me about first day of kindergarten, coming home from school and jumping on cars and she was getting phone calls. And so you know, I was probably very troubled at a very young age. And I know that I was acting out at a very young age. And the end of the end of kindergarten, um, last day of school is when I found out my dad wasn't my real dad came home and there was a diploma or certification that had his name on it. And I gave it to them. And that's when they sat me down and explained to me that uh, he wasn't my real dad. And my sister was basically my half sister. And so I truly believe on top of all the trauma and the violence that was in my house prior to that moment, now I feel separated and black sheeped and rejected because Mm. it's not my real dad. Another man's taking care of me. Where's my real dad? Um, You know, my sister's not my real sister or my full-blooded sister. And so, you know, Mm. as time went on, I think there was something inside of me that just saw how different I was, um, how set apart I was because of the way that, you know, my, my dad treated my sister. It was his daughter. And I know that my mom, she was very passive. She'd been abused her whole life. And so she found a man who, you know, kind of fit the cycle that she already knew. Mm -hmm. And she did her best. I believe she did her best to try to keep me out of a lot of that, um, chaos, but there was only so much she could do. And even at that time, you know, being so young, I took that as rejection, right? You know, my mom was protecting me, but it seemed like she was pushing me away or trying to hide me or get rid of me, right? Because she didn't want anything bad to happen to me. And so I just witnessed, you know, through elementary school, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, the partying, the violence, the police coming to my house all the time. My dad would get taken away and then he'd come back later that night still under the influence. And then my mom and dad would go at it again. And that was pretty much my whole childhood. I mean, the weekends were for her, for friends, their friends to come over and party and be loud while my sister and I were in our bedrooms and we had to try to sleep through all that chaos. You were also sexually assaulted when you were younger, right? Yeah. Um, when I was probably like seven, eight, something like that, one of the neighborhood kids, roughly my age, um, brought me into a closet and did some stuff with me. And, and, uh, he, his dad and my dad were friends. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't tell. And my dad was like this, like Marine alpha, like he was a bad dude. You know I mean? I, I definitely, you know, my dad was just like the dude in my head that you just don't mess with. Like Mm -hmm. my dad's, my dad, like, you know, he was a fighter in the Marines. He was just, I mean, he was tough. He talked like he was tough. He was just, Mm -hmm. he was just tough. Like my dad was this muscular, hard drinking, hard nosed, hard working, like guy, you know? And so 
there was no way that I was going to take that to my dad, you know, and, and talk about those kind of things. And I think that that, um, that really messed with me too, because when given the opportunity, when I got into high school and started having relationships with these women, I, there was something I had to prove to myself. Um, there was something I had to prove to my dad, even though he didn't know, um, there was just something there in the victim in that situation. And so you feel like maybe you opened up that door, right? You allowed that to happen. And so there was a lot of those kind of thoughts that went with that stuff. But when it came to my parents, I saw their relationship. I never saw love between them. Like I never saw my parents genuinely kiss and look each other in the eye and say, I love you. And that's just not what I grew up with at all. And so for me, you know, here I am being highly sexually active with all these women and trying to figure out what love was throwing the word around. Like I knew what it was. Right. And so, you know, I believe that, that, that sexual encounter eventually led me right before I became sexual in high school. Um, I started getting really into pornography and magazines. And so, you know, I think that's another thing that derailed me, you know, by the time, I mean, I was a heathen in high school. I, I truly, you know, I can look back and just like, man, like these are just things that you probably shouldn't be doing at all sexually. Um, but I was doing it. And I think just like the bottle or drugs, I needed more extreme stuff in order to be stimulated and satisfied. Right. Because you just, you just go off the deep end with all of it. And so, yeah. Um, thanks for bringing that up. I, but that adds yeah, to a lot. that kind of explains why you where you were heading in the direction you were going. It's like, why would somebody self-destruct like that? And you mentioned your sister. Was your sister younger or older than you? Uh, she's 18 months younger. Were younger you kind of her protector at all or well, not really? Or Not really. I, I think because we were treated so different as kids that we were kind of our own entities. It was never... You know, I have a son and a daughter now, and they're mm-hmm. about two, two and a half years apart. And one of my major drives in their relationship is that they love each other like brother and sister, right? I didn't have that with my sister. There was not, there wasn't mm-hmm. that established relationship. And she could easily just go say, I did something and my dad would believe her, right? Because I was his baby girl. So we didn't have that. And the truth is, is that, you know, I started getting in trouble at the age of 14 or 15. Well, my sister was slightly younger than me. So when I started getting in trouble is when she started getting in trouble. And so some Ooh. of the, some of the guys that she hung out with, yeah, were a lot, lot um, more, they, they were more dangerous than a lot of the guys I hung out with. Like I hung out with some gang bangers and stuff like that, but most of us were just a bunch of kids that were troublemakers. I wouldn't even say we were just more troublemaking tough guys yeah, than anything juvenile delinquents you know yeah there you go juvenile delinquents where my sister was hanging out with straight gangsters oh. you know i mean she she would come home with blood on her clothes because one of her friends just got stabbed and she was there to witness it and she was holding the guy like i didn't have to witness that stuff the the worst that i've ever witnessed was much later after my suicide attempt when my buddy had committed suicide and he blew his head off with a shotgun and i walked in on the aftermath like that's that's what I've witnessed, but I have not witnessed the act of, I've never been in the midst of anything like that. It's so It's just as traumatic, brother. It is just as traumatic to come in on the aftermath as to watch somebody blow their head off. I mean, there was times where I pulled knives out on my dad. You know, my dad and I, when I was 16, we got into a full on, well, I wouldn't say it was like an equal fight because he definitely dominated that situation, but 
you know, there were times where I pulled knives out on my dad. Like it, that was just the brand of violence that was surrounded us. And, you know, my sister hung out with some really tough people. I had a, a group of guys from different walks of life. And then my mom, when my, when my dad had left the house, he moved out, you know, my mom was on drugs and, and she was hanging out with some really compromised guys too. You know, we had a lot of riffraff on my, in my house, you know, we had, it was just all over the place. Drugs and alcohol and violence were just like, it was just part of my upbringing. <laughs> and weren't you just, and your sister like living in the house without any adults around and you guys fending for, for yourself? How we did, did you survive that? Well, I guess we just figured it out, right? Um, you know, there was this time where my dad had left and my mom was all strung out. And so she had left and the electricity wasn't being paid, like... I don't know how we were able to stay in the house, but there was a good two, three, four months where we were just living in the house, my sister and I, both of us, and we had to go find our own food. And, you know, I had some pretty cool friends in high school too. So I was able to go over there and eat and stuff. But when I went back home, you know, one, I never knew what to expect with whether or not my mom and her friends were there, or my sister and her friends were there. We'd bring a lot of the trouble to our house, but, you know, we, we found a way, I guess, to, to survive. We did. By the time I was a freshman in high school, I started drinking myself. I remember drinking and, and spending the night at a friend's house and waking up the next day just completely like I just felt so bad. I'm like, you know, I can't believe people do this. But for those few hours that I was intoxicated, I didn't have to think about my home or anything that was going on there. Mm -hmm. And I think that really opened up a door for me. Because shortly after that, I got introduced to marijuana and then shrooms and acid. And those were my drugs of choice in high school. And I ran. I ran to the drugs and the alcohol a lot because it was they were just great numbing devices yes. for me. And that's what I was using it for. I mean, I probably had some good times in there and fun times with my friends. But, you know, what I was using it for was medication to numb myself. But then that turned into an addiction. Right. I mean, I really couldn't mm -hmm. do much without the drugs and the alcohol. And by the time I was 16 or 17 years old, I was a full blown drug addict and alcoholic. Probably did a couple rounds in juvenile hall, some weekend work programs, a couple years of probation in there. Got in trouble one time where I had a, a shotgun pulled out on me. And I was so reckless that I challenged the guy with that shotgun pointed at me. I, I challenged him to shoot me. I just, I was that kid. I really needed attention and I was in a lot of pain. And so the things that I was doing was really outrageous. Um, by the time I was in my 20s, I probably ran through five or six jobs. Couldn't hold on to them very long because what would happen was, is I'd get really involved with the people at work and we would party. We'd go out and then people would see that side of me, that really broken, distraught, intoxicated side of me and it would get back around work and I'd eventually lose my job. I know that's what it was connected to, you know, 90% of the time is my, my behavior outside of work because I had no problem showing up to work. I had no problem showing up intoxicated. I no problem showing up after not getting any sleep that night and just working my tail off. I I'd never had a problem doing any of that. I would project all my garbage onto them. If they were really kind and nice, I couldn't handle it too much. I wasn't used to that. I was used to more of the chaos and the violence. 
And so the relationships that were more stimulating to me were the ones that were a, a little bit more violent. So, you know, destructive relationships, alcohol and drugs. And then when I was 29 years old, I met a young lady at a bank. And at this time I was uh, a drug dealer. I was selling steroids and human growth hormone. Um, I was, I didn't have my license, but I was driving another woman's car and I went to the bank to go cash a drug check and met another young lady and got her phone number because that's what I did. Cause you know, I needed all these women in relationships to validate me. That's how I felt a little bit better about myself. And really early on in that relationship, there were a lot of red flags and I've been in relationships where there were red flags and I was the one usually throwing the red flags to people, but this one was something extra. We got, the relationship got pretty violent early on. We broke up and when we broke up, I decided to seek out God. Um, I had a friend that was always trying to get me to come to church, go to Bible studies. And I eventually was like, you know, man, I have nothing going for me. I don't have my license. I'm not working drug dealer. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict, you know, basically homeless. And he invited me to church. And at that, that, that time I, I gave my life over the Lord shortly after that. Cause we know how the devil works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my friend reached out to me and he said, Hey, I just want to let you know that your ex-girlfriend is on Craigslist and she's prostit prostituting herself out. He showed, yeah. He showed me the picture. He showed me um, the page she was on. Of course she had an alias, but it was her phone number. Her phone number was attached. So when Craigslist first came out, they had escorting as an option. Right. I mean, I don't yeah, think you I can, saw that. I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you can do that now, but um, at the time, so for me, because I still cared about her, even though we had a major falling out, I chose to reach out to her and was like, you know, what are you doing? Why would you do this to yourself? Someone gave her an opportunity to make some money and it was easy money. So she took that path. We decided that we were going to try to make our relationship work out. And the deal was that she had to get rid of all her clients. And she went to Hawaii. This was supposed to be her last, from my understanding, this was her last client before she cut that lifestyle out and just worked on a relationship with me. And while she was over there in Hawaii, she was sending me texts of black eyes. And she was talking about how she was totally taken advantage of. Basically, she used all the indicators without saying rape to me and, and her getting beaten. Like I saw, like, and I can hear, I knew exactly what was going on. She said, you know, when I get home, I just, first off, I'm sorry for everything that has ever happened to, between us. And not like it was all her fault, right? Because I had my own junk, right. but um, she apologized for her side of it. And so when she got back, she wanted to work things out. And so she, she came back into town. I was at a friend's house. She picked me up. We stopped off at the liquor store, went back to her house or her, her loft. She lived in a uh, third story loft and we got into a conversation and it was just a really hard place for me to be. I'd been drinking that day. She had just gotten raped and beaten. I had this new faith. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. There was just so much going on with me and we got into an argument. And so I went downstairs to kind of rest it off. And I woke up to a banging at the door and it was the police to like open up. We know you're in there. 
And she came downstairs and I looked at her and asked her what was going on. And she looked at me and she said, I called the cops and said that you tried to rape me and tried to kill me. Yeah. And um, in that moment, I was just so scared. I felt betrayed. Like the truth is I just, I wanted what was best for her and maybe I wasn't, I wasn't the best for her. I mean, why um, would she say that? Um, you know, it's crazy because I spent some time in the hospital really praying and meditating on that. And basically what it was, was when she came home, she expected me to receive her with open arms. And um, the one guy she didn't expect to reject her, rejected her. And I think it became more of a power move. And she wanted to have the upper hand on that situation. Um, she dug pretty deep on that one. And so, you know, the upper hand was calling the cops and saying what she said. And in that moment, I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm over this life. I, I just can't do this anymore. And so I ran headfirst out of a closed third story loft window. Wow. Um, jumped through that window. You meant to commit suicide though, right? Yeah. Yeah. My whole thing was, it was over. Like it was just over for me. I just, I couldn't continue to live the life that I was, I was 29 years old, didn't have anything going for me. I was told as a kid, by the time I was 30, I'd be dead or in prison. Well, those two opportunities just showed up at the door. Right. Um, and so I just kind of bought into the self-fulfilling prophecy, just like the ones where you're going to always be an alcoholic or a drug addict because your parents are, you know, another, that was another lie I bought into that. There was a lot of stuff that was told to me as a kid that I stayed attached to and that I believed in. I struggled with suicidal thoughts from a very young age. Like I just, life would be better without me there. And I would, um, cut my arms a lot. My buddy and I, I had a buddy who had a similar upbringing as I did. And we would go cut together. That's what we would do. We'd go cut together. And so suicide was not a new thought for me. I appreciate you being so candid with um, all those painful memories that couldn't have been easy. You just jumped out of the window and you, mm-hmm. and you say that you, you woke up and you were really disappointed that you woke up. Well, you know, when I hit the ground, I never blacked out. And uh, oh. yeah, when I hit the ground, I, I, I remember it was hard for me to breathe. And at this point, you know, I'm, I got a severed spine and broken arms, and a collapsed lung. I didn't know that in that at the time, but um, it hurt to breathe. I mean, I had one lung and I remember looking up at the window and asking God why he would let me live. And shortly after that, you know, I was taken to the hospital, went under the knife for about 10 hours, woke up uh, in the hospital with tubes coming out of my neck and a back brace, uh, cast, external fixator, pads that they throw all over your chest and oxygen. It was a mess. Um, I was pieced back together and the cops showed up and arrested me for rape and attempted murder and threw a million dollar bail on me and shackled me. Yeah. They shackled me to the bed. They, I guess they considered me a flight risk. And so. Oh um, yeah. When being a, a broken back and, and arms and half of a lung, how in the world did they think you were a flight risk? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't get out I, of bed. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't sit up on my own. Uh, 
there was nothing I could do. I mean, I had nurses shaving me. I had a catheter, so I, I didn't have to move, but I really couldn't move. I was in so much pain. And even though I was highly medicated, lots of morphine. I mean, I remember that morphine drip and I remember my eyes rolling and the taste in my mouth. I mean, I remember that stuff and I was still in just such bad pain. And they shackled me to the, the bed. They shackled me. And so at that point, I had 24 hour surveillance. They put a cop in my room 24 hours a day to monitor me, to make sure that I didn't get up and run. <laughs> I think that uh, police officer was kind of your saving in grace though. I don't, I think the, the events that happened after that were, I would say, uh, God arranged it for you, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Well, see, here's the difference of you on this podcast, the most podcasts that I do, is that you know a lot of the background and a lot of the story. So, um, correct. What happened was, is the cop was actually giving me a really hard time and he didn't want to be there. You could tell he didn't want to be there. He had my case next to him. And, you know, he's thumbing through and he's looking at me and he's telling me how bad of a guy I am. And, you know, he's making comments of about what they're going to do to me in prison and all this kind of stuff. And as he's telling me all this stuff, you know, I'm like, you know, I've done a lot of dumb stuff, sir. And but this is not one of those things that I would have ever done. And mm-hmm. I started to break down crying and um, a nurse had to come in to calm me down. They didn't want my blood pressure up. I lost a bunch of blood in the surgery. And even through all the blood transfusions, my body kept rejecting blood for whatever reason. So I was struggling physically. And I remember the nurse leaves. And as the nurse is leaving, the young lady walks in with a disguise on. The one that called the police on you? Yeah, the one that accused me. The cop's demeanor just changed. It just, his demeanor just changed. And he looks at me and goes like, is that who I think that is? Yep. (laughs) And he's just like, well, this doesn't make sense, right? For someone to accuse you of these things, but then show up to see you at the hospital. I think I should have like soap opera music here, you know, (laughs) dramatic effect. Cause that was just crazy that she would show up. Why why would she show up? General hospital meets lifetime. (laughs) Right. Um, Why would she show up at the hospital if you, if you raped her and tried to kill her? Well, the cop, the the police officer, after he escorted out, told me because she wanted to give me the restraining order. And he goes, she has no business doing that. Like, what's the point? Right. Um, And again, she came disguised. It's not like she just showed up like she was in a disguise, you know, and not a very good one. (laughs) No, it wasn't good. I mean, I knew who it was. I definitely knew who it was. But um, that was the last time I ever saw her. And this is when God really started working in my life, because as I was laying there in bed with all the pain meds pumping through me and the pain and the, the, the lights and the, the noises of the hospital and the constant traffic. I mean, if you've ever spent any time in the hospital, it's pretty rough. Um, yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty, especially when you're in pain and you're broken to pieces and you don't know what your future looks like. But I remember just talking to God and I asked him, I was like, you know, what do, what do we do? What do we do from here? And all of a sudden, like in just this moment, I get this, calming sense that comes over me um like everything chilled out for a second you know the lights seemed to dim the noises seemed to go away the the pain subsided there for a moment and i hear clear as day the charges will be dropped your bills will be paid and you will walk again wow and um yeah i doze off and 
I wake up and all the pain, the noise, the lights, everything is back. And um, one of the police officers came in to, to guard me. And he goes, hey, Decker, I just want to let you know that they're going to drop the charges. <laughs> like, we wow. got to be. Yeah. So a couple of days later, detectives come in, they drop the charges, um, fingerprint me and wish me the best. And then shortly after that, so I wasn't allowed to have any guests because of the nature of the crime. And I was incarcerated, basically. Um, and it was my mom. So here's my mom in the hallway, crying her eyes out. I know what's going on. And she comes in the room and I'm asking her to give me some info. And she's just like, everything's going to be fine. So everything's going to be fine. Well, I get it out of her that, you know, I'm never going to walk again. That's, that's the news. Oh. Great chance. This guy never walks again. Right. My mom just comes over to me and she just looks at me and she goes, son. And my mom and I, before I tell you this, <laughs> my mom and I did not have a great relationship. My mom, our last conversation was a really bad one. I told my mom, uh, F you, I hate you. I want to have nothing to do with you. That was Aww. my last, this was my last conversation with my mom, right? And here she is, her broken child in front of her. And she looks at me and she says, son, I wish everything had ended for you that day. And I heard, I love you. That's what I heard. I heard, I love you <laughs> like, because I, I felt like, um, she didn't want me in pain anymore. She didn't want to be in pain anymore. You know, she had a rough life. She brought me into this life. I had, and I just received that as love. I understood what she was saying um, and what she meant. Shortly after that, some nurses come in and say, we're going to try to get you to walk, Mr. Decker. And I knew for a fact it just wasn't going to happen. But you know what it was, was, you know, I, I had to give my mom some kind of level of hope and cool the stuff that comes to, to memory when you got to do these things. So I remember Passion of Christ. I remember thinking about what Jesus did for me. So what I got to try to do for my mom. And I remember Isaiah 53, one of my mentors and closest friends used to tell me Isaiah 53 is my favorite chapter. So that was the one I read the most. And I just remember exactly what Christ went through for me um, outside of seeing it through the passion of Christ. I mean, in the passion of Christ, you still recognize Jim Caviezel, right? Or Jesus, you know, the mm -hmm. party's playing. But historically, biblically, Jesus was mangled. You couldn't recognize him, right? That's at this right. point. And, and so I, I thought about that. I'm like, man, I got to try. I got to give this a shot. And so as I was thinking those thoughts, I mustered up the, the strength to do it. And as soon as I got up on my feet, I squealed and it felt like I broke myself all over again. And the nurses had to stick morphine back into my neck tube, lay me down. And they're like, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Shortly after that, a neurosurgeon comes in and says, we're going to perform another surgery. So they performed another surgery shortly after that. And I was able to get out of bed, get on my feet. I wasn't walking. I was moving. Uh, I was dragging my left foot, but I was walking with my right foot. But for me, that was good enough. Um, that was something. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, but you were like super motivated guy in rehab. You were like overachiever boy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of how I live life. Yeah, well, you know, you will walk again. And there that was, right? The charges will be dropped. You will walk again. And there we go. Uh, when it was all said and done, I had over $2 million with the hospital stays, surgeries, medication, physical therapy, whatever comes with all that, right? And I've never had to pay 
any of the $2 million for my suicide attempt and, and my brokenness. And so here we are, I'm walking again. And this is when I really got to know my mom. I moved in with my mom and I remember she came home one day and I just broke down crying. And I just looked at her and thanked her for being my mom. I I knew that's who God gave me. And that's when my mom broke it down and told me about her childhood and about Mm -hmm. everything she had been through. And then she told me about my dad and everything he had been through. And I understood these two dysfunctional people. And all I could do is forgive and have grace in my heart for the things that they had been through. And I wasn't mad at them for how they raised me and what they did to me or didn't do to me. I think that they earnestly did their best given with what they had. And I think that was my biggest, I think that's what catapulted me into my healing, uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, was forgiving my parents and like accepting them for being human, just like me. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, they were victims too. Yeah. You know, environment as well. And I tell people all the time, like victim victimized. I mean, I became a violent person because of what I was exposed to in my house. And I thought it was normal behavior. I thought that you, you got your way by being aggressive and hyper assertive. And if you had to get physical to get your point across, if you had to raise your voice higher, you know, to get you like, that's just what you do. That's what I was conditioned to believe. And I just realized that they had been exposed to a lot of that stuff too. And I think God had me on this path of breaking the cycle. He yes. really wanted, yes. he wanted me to break the cycle and it sucked. <laughs> there oh, yeah. was a lot there. Well, here's the thing. It's like you're addressing stuff that generations before you haven't addressed. Oh, yeah. um, so part of you is like, man, this is brutal. But the other part is honored that God has called you out and you've taken the call. So I spent the next four years rehabilitating myself, reading the word, praying, you know, really trying to move in a direction of full on healing. After I was told I was never going to walk again, if I did, I'd be living off a disability. I'd be on pain meds for the rest of my life. Even when the, the hospital gave up on me with the physical therapy, they're like, yeah, this is good as it gets for you. I could still barely move and I was still in all sorts of pain. I took it upon myself to get into the gym. Um, but that was, that was another God situation. I had Mm -hmm. a friend, I had a friend of mine who wanted me to show him stuff at something at the gym. So he brought me along and, um, I, I lifted weights with him. And when I did, I realized how much I loved lifting weights. Um, when I jumped out of that window, I was 215 pounds, pretty solid, muscular guy. Three weeks in the hospital, I was down to 155, 160. I had withered away to the point that when I first saw myself in the mirror, I didn't even recognize the guy in the mirror. I'm like, who, who's this guy in the room with me? Mm-hmm. And it was me. It was me. I didn't even recognize me. But, you know, when my buddy Mike brought me to the gym and we started working out together, um, it just like it sparked something. You know, hindsight 2020, you see what God was doing, right? Um, at the time I was just kind of going with it. And so I started working out and then I started riding my bike to all my hospital visits, all my doctor's appointments. And so that was like a good 10 mile ride there and back. And I got to a point where I show up for one of my doctor's appointment appointments and, and my doctor looks at me, he's like, what's going on with you? Um, you're putting on size, you're getting strong. Like I see it. Mm-hmm. And 
And I just told him, I said, you know, I decided to start working out and I was still struggling with the alcohol. I was using the alcohol as a form of medication in the midst of all my physical and emotional pain that I was still kind of going through. Um, and I was on all sorts of pain medications, but it was something I constantly prayed about. I was like, you know, God, you're going to have to get me off the pain meds. You're going to have to get me off the alcohol. Well, the fitness is what allowed me to get off the pain meds, you know, having a strong body and moving well enough, got rid of a lot of the pain for me. And so I got off pretty much every single pain med. And then, um, I eventually got back into the workforce. I got a job at a gym. My whole goal was like, Hey, how can I go into this life and inspire and encourage people to make better decisions and not make the same choices I did. And I, um, but again, I was still struggling with the alcohol. I got a job at a gym and I met a young lady there and, um, I remember our first date. So the young lady, I'll fast forward. She's my wife now. Um, right. <laughs> right. I don't want everyone to think I'm fooling around, but she would, <laughs> right. Like, um, but you know, um, I met her, I met her there and I remember our first date, I had ordered a pitcher of beer. And, and again, remember I was praying about getting off the alcohol. I was really having a hard time. And she said, I don't want any of that. And I was like, good. Cause I wasn't going to share it anyway. It was kind of just for me. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I was kind of like that dude. Right. And, and, but what I realized in that moment is that God was using that woman to get me off the alcohol. And it was our biggest, like the thing that we thought about, thought about was my drinking. So mm-hmm. for the very first nine months of our relationship, it was all about my drinking. And I eventually got behind the wheel of her car intoxicated crashed her car and yeah i ran from the scene of the crime fell into a creek got bloody got wet hit under a house and here i am under a house you know like man god look at where i'm at right now (laughs) you know i was the guy that jumped out of a window tried to take his life was told he was never going to walk again i'm working out all the time i have a job I have this wonderful young lady in my life. Like I have a pretty great life and here I am throwing it away for the alcohol. I'm like, I've chosen to drink alcohol instead of hand the rest of my problems to you. And in that moment, I told God that if he bailed me out of that situation and he didn't have to, because we don't need, he doesn't need to negotiate with me. But if he, if, if he bailed me out of that situation, I would marry Alyssa and I would, uh, never drink ever again. And so that happened almost 10 years ago. I've never picked up the bottle again. And what I truly believe happened under that house needed to happen, like jumping out of the window needed to happen. I believe I truly repented. I think I understood the magnitude of God's grace and his love for me in my life. And I, I just knew I didn't need the alcohol, that he was good enough for me. And so unfortunately, when you hear the word repentance, uh, it's been pretty tarnished yeah. uh, through religion. Um, but really what repentance is, is just having that, you know, that, that moment of this is wrong and I can't do it anymore. So you know, about face. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's nothing, it's nothing so crazy. It's just something has to change, you know, and having the right heart before that. So, you know, that happened. And, and so, you know, the moment I quit drinking, more healing took place. God now was allowed <laughs> in because I wasn't blocking him out with the alcohol. 
to um, really work on the deeper childhood stuff that I had and all the other trauma. And my at the time that I was drinking, I was struggling because I had just hurt myself. I was told I wasn't going to get to go to the gym. I was doing really well at a job and I was crushing it, but I was so performance driven. You know, I, it was like the, with alcoholics or addicts, it's like more is better. Really what it is, is I had to prove to my dad constantly how valuable I was by performing at such a high level. Um, and I mean, even though the reality of that situation was that would never happen, that was how I approached my life. And so I was getting so deep into performing at my new job that it provided like a whole nother level of stress for me. And um, now God had an opportunity to work on that for me. Like, okay, well, this isn't about your worldly father and you needing to perform, right? Um, but I'm just, it was like, lesson after lesson, healing trauma after trauma, and giving me wisdom on top of wisdom. And so I've spent the last 15 years, really weeding through the previous 30. Right. And trying yes. to unpack all that and heal all that. So yeah, I mean, we can fast forward to what I do now, I'm a health and fitness coach, and I'm an addiction recovery coach as well. I work with at risk youth. I run a gym out of my house and, you know, I'm a family man now and, you know, I have a ministry as well. So I basically try to wear the hat of everything that I ever needed. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, listening to your story, I mean, I think we've, we've all gone through God taking us to the woodshed more than once. Get a hold of us because we're so hard headed and stubborn as a mule oh you didn't learn the lesson the first time well we're gonna go back and we're going to learn another lesson today (laughs) but there is grace and forgiveness from the lord he's the god of second chances amen yeah redemption is my middle name (laughs) yes he has redeemed my life like no one's business and he continues to bless it and you know i i truly understand his grace. I mean, he's got so much of it. Not that I ever want to abuse it. Cause I, you know, there were times in my walk where I did abuse his grace, but he even bestowed grace on me then too. And I'm just so grateful for everything that he's pulled me out of. And now I have a chance to give that back to the people and share my story and show people what fixes all that stuff. You know, what transforms, what, what truly transforms people and transforms lives. Jesus hundred percent Jesus. So you're a fitness coach. I know that you're involved with a bunch of other organizations. Well, so I work for um, New Visions Recovery Solutions, and that's where I work with at-risk youth that have been through the foster care system um, and uh, through the juvenile hall system. Um, You know, I'm pretty outgoing guy. So I'm, I'm connected to a few ministries out here. Uh, the sanctuary church would be one of them. They're a recovery church. I'm very big into recovery and finding God in the middle of that and, and using him to, to heal your traumas and your addictions. Fervent church is another ministry that I'm uh, attached to and uh, all things possible ministries. And Victor Marks is another one. I'm just very fortunate to be able to 
work with and through these individuals. Uh, I have my own recovery softball team that just started. Um, we get, yeah. Um, and the thing is, is people like, oh, recovery, you know, I don't have a problem with drinking or using. Well, how about trauma? Have you, were you ever sexually abused? Um, did you ever try attempting suicide? Like when I talk about recovery, I don't talk about drug and alcohol. I, I think drug and alcohol is, you know, a lot of times the medication or the band-aid that we use for the deeper stuff. Right. Yes. So when I thought, when I think about recovery, I'm not talking about drug and alcohol for the, I mean, yes, it plays a part, but that's not the whole thing. Um, but yeah. And then I have Rob Decker speaks, which is, which is my website and my platform to go share through podcasting and on stage and at events and stuff like that. And currently working on a book, God's awning, it's almost done. It's going to be, um, it will tell parts of my story and then it's going to line it up with scripture and then we'll have an application part in it so that you can get really active. And I know that my story, like yourself, yes, we live different lives and we've seen different types of trauma, but we can relate to each other. Right. And so, you know, I'm writing this book where you can relate to people. I actually get more feedback from women than men, even though I have a bunch of daddy issues. Right. Um, but we all have parental issues. We all have childhood issues. We all have trauma right? And so if someone can pull and relate some of my trauma to their trauma, like that's what it's all about and know that there's healing, like there is healing and all that. So right now we're working on, on that book as well. And so, yeah, I just get to do a lot of really cool stuff, <laughs> you know, um, keep busy. That's for sure. Just like me. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no end to people that you can't help. Right. I mean, you know, I, I get random people, emailing me or inboxing me on social media with some of their stuff and I've had people that I just met or people that were sent to me I, I've had young men that were going to commit suicide and I knew someone that they knew so they sent them to me and then we sit down and we have these epic conversations and you know there was there was a a time where I went to go check out this youth group for the first time and the pastor runs up to me as I'm walking in the door and he said the, this young man over here wants to commit suicide first time, first time I walk in this church, first time I ever come check out this service. And he's already throwing, yeah, I got this suicidal kid for you. And, you know, just being able to talk about everything I'd been through and the feelings that I had of loneliness and isolation, and it changed that whole kid's life. You know, he, he felt like he was the only one who was experiencing it or has ever experienced it. And, you know, he thought maybe his dad was the only dad that treated him the way that he treated him. And, you know, now the kid like serves Christ is in the military. Like he's changed mm -hmm. his whole life. He got off drugs and alcohol, like, but that's the kind of stuff that happens when you start walking this course is you start meeting individuals where, you know, your story really is going to resonate with them and what, and, and because we've come out of it, um, we give somebody hope all hope comes from, from Christ. It all comes from him. But just to know that there's someone like me that went through it and has seen the other side, I don't think I see that changing anytime soon. Yeah. We've kind of got job security here. I, I chose the topic for the podcast is abuse because I will never run out of topics. I'll never run out of people to come on and be a guest it's inexhaustive. It, yeah. Unfortunately, it would be great that we would work ourselves out of a job, but, you know, God uses our brokenness to help somebody else heal. 
Yeah. And I'm, and I'm all for it. Like, you know, if you, if someone can use my, my walk, my journey to improve their life, like, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, how someone's going to hear this podcast. I'm never going to meet them, never going to know who they are. You can spark something inside them. Right. And then they can become that person that walks out into this world and goes and changes a nation. Right. You never know. Um, I'm excited for when I get to the other side, people I get to meet that I didn't get to meet here. I think that's going to be super cool because truth is, is that a very small percentage of people that hear my story and I impact them actually reach out to me. Well, I'm glad to know you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad we, we connected and um, got to hear your story and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, send some people over for my Mending the Soul groups. Um, I will roll out the red carpet. Yeah. Um, well, I have someone that I can send you. And, you know, I think that she'd be highly beneficial for your show. And, you know, I know enough people. And I think that if we talk about our traumas and our mental health enough, we can make someone else comfortable to do the same. Now, you just work with guys or do you work with uh, women? Men and women. I work with men and women. It's primarily guys because, you know, naturally I relate to them. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had a woman recently who reached out and was like, I have a problem with drinking. I know that you quit drinking. I've been struggling my faith. I know you're a man of faith and you're a fitness coach and I need to work out. And so, you know, she, she sought me out and she was like, you're pretty much a three in one for me. So <laughs> if we great. can knock it off, yeah, if we can all. And so, yeah, Jennifer, you know, she's a great friend of mine and we've developed a great bond with each other. I, I genuinely work with more men than women because it's just easier for yeah. me, dude. So, but I don't, given that opportunity, I'll still work with women if that's who God brings into my life. Right. You know, when it, so. sometimes it will just fit. It would be yeah. the right, the perfect fit. So I wanted to have you give advice to the people who are listening right now that are going through some of the stuff that you went through. What would you say to them? Well, you you, you have to seek support and help. You just have to do it. You you have to reach out, um, know that. And I think what happens for a lot of us is that we, we hold on to fear and shame. Uh, we don't want to be judged for the things that we've gone through, but most of us were victims, mm-hmm. you know, and we've made a lot of bad choices based off of some of the things that have happened to us. And that's, and that's okay. I, I think that you can shake the shame and just reach out. There are plenty of um, people out there, resources that would be more than happy to walk you through whatever you're, you're going through. I think I, one of the things you said, you work for all these people or, you know, I work for, um, I'm a, an addiction recovery coach. Right. And so I have connections to a recovery center where they set people up with mentors to work with you so they can walk you through your drug and alcohol addiction and stuff. So there's always going to be resources out there. So don't be afraid to go out and look for those resources and just know that it may not work the first or second or third time. Um, that's just part of it. Some of my issues went away right away and other ones didn't, but don't quit on yourself. Just continue to, to seek out answers and to seek out healing. You'll be okay. And, you know, for me, it's got to center around God. You know, you really got to understand who he created you to be and how much he loves you, no matter what bad stuff has happened to you. He loves you. And so 
turn to him, open up the scriptures, pray, even though it doesn't seem like he's listening, he's totally listening. Trust me. There were a lot of times where I didn't think he was and then boom. Right. Um, so seek the help and, and deepen your faith uh, in your process. Wow. Amen. I totally, totally agree with all of those things. Such good advice. So make sure you tell the folks how they can connect with you and get a hold of your resources. Yeah, well, if you're in Colorado Springs, it's a lot easier. Um, I do actually have friends that run recovery centers across the United States, um, guys that have shows and connections that, that live in the United States. It's just kind of when you get into recovery, you start making those kind of connections. But um, if you go to robdeckerspeaks.com, you can, that's my website. You can see here, whatever you need to. Also, it has a, a place where you can put in your information and send it to me via email so that we can connect. Um, if you're going through an emergency, I will do my best to get a hold of you as soon as possible. But I always get, I respond to everybody. If it's life or death, you know, you're really gonna have to seek out something local to you. Um, even though I have no problem with giving you a call and us walking and talking through it, but it's all, it's always nice to have some, something close as well. So I will do everything I can to, to support you and encourage and inspire you, um, and, and to kind of guide you in the right direction. This has been really awesome to hear your story and it's so powerful how God's brought you through all that. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast and being so transparent with us and vulnerable and real uh, you're welcome. your story well you know I, I um i think that sometimes we live in a a time and place that people are afraid to open up and be transparent and vulnerable and i believe in my heart that's the only way that i can help people is to show them hey this is what i've been through and it's just an honest approach you know, so people don't feel like they have to hide behind anything. Amen. God bless you. God bless you as well, Diana. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.